Now, for our case this morning, we'll be in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to it from one of the Bibles in front of you in the chair there. But as you're doing that, I want you to think about who do you go to when you're suffering? Who do you go to when you are suffering? The past couple of weeks have been a reckoning on institutional help. A week ago, the largest Protestant denomination in America released a third-party investigation on sexual abuse cover-ups. The Southern Baptist Convention's bureaucratic wing, called the Executive Committee, was shown to fail reporting abusive actions by pastors and warn other Southern Baptist churches from hiring those pastors who were well-known and documented to be predators. This internal list, which was hidden for a couple of decades, was then made known and is published on the web today, has more than 700 ministers' names on it and what they did wrong. And we look at that and we recognize that churches, out of all places, are called by God to be safe havens for people who are suffering. So who do you go to when you're in trouble? So many believe that they could trust in these pastors, and the reckoning is so terrible to understand. And still fresh in our hearts, several days ago, a deranged psychopath murdered his grandmother and then went on to an elementary school in southwest Texas where he murdered two teachers and 19 children after more than 100 rounds were shot. As if that wasn't awful enough, what's come to light in the last couple of days is that there were more than eight 911 phone calls from within the building. Several of them were from children who were later slain. Yet it was local officers who were waiting waiting outside the school for nearly 40 minutes before going in. One of the moms on the scene of a student broke through the police's barricade and went in to get her two children from inside and brought them out on her own. But not everyone had that kind of help. Children had freely gone to school trusting it as a safe haven. And so again, who do you go to when you're suffering? These kids thought that they could trust in so many things. A door a wall, a helper. And it's here that we see the horror and the root of sin and evil. My sermon this morning comes from the account of Matthew who shows Jesus responding to a woman who begs for help. And she doesn't just beg once, she continually begs him to help her. Her child, the reason why she is begging, her child is possessed by a demon. And when you're demon-possessed, it means that your soul is internally transfixed by Satan and his evil cohorts. It also means that not only is your soul transfixed by Satan, but also it takes over the ability of your body to function normally to where we would look at someone visually and see they are demon-possessed, but that is not even the root of what is going on in their hearts. It is not a small ordeal. This is not just a lady who brings up a sick child. This is a lady who is bringing up her daughter who is demon-possessed. And the language here of child actually means small, small child. And yet, where did she go? This morning, I want to bring this text to light in two major areas. I want to, I want to briefly, briefly tell you about the tension within this text and then I want to bring some biblical judgments from the text onto us, how we, can, how we can think about suffering, how we can think about where to place our suffering, and who we can go to. So if you're using an outline that's been provided in your bulletin, the, those four points will come 
uh, in a little bit, but I want to first kind of tell you about the tension of this text. This isn't just a a random occurrence in Jesus' life. Uh, To give you a little bit of locational context, verse 21, which begins our passage, begins a a very new segment in Jesus' own ministry. The great Galilean ministry, where it seems like he's been for, well, historically about a year, is now done. And now Jesus enters a Gentile area. And he's now in the region called Tari and Sidon. And the central chapters of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16, 17, or 15, 16, and 17, they record for us this, this major turning point in Jesus' own ministry. So you can think of Jesus going on a straight line, teaching side to side, but now it's like he's shifting gears or he's taking a, a new highway in a different direction. These people, more and more, though, will begin to reject Jesus, even though as they continue to follow him. So the, the rejection, or you can think of this visually like a cloud that is hovering over Jesus, that, that rejection cloud is actually getting darker and more uh, has more volume than it had at the beginning. And I want you to understand specifically what I mean by people will grow in their rejection of Jesus. It's not that people stop coming to hear Jesus preach. You know, they're not, they're not rejecting by their attendance. And they also continue to believe that he's a, hero, a miracle worker and a healer. So they're coming to him for things. They're coming to him who's teaching. But what I mean by them rejecting him, I mean that they are rejecting his claims to be the Messiah of God, the one that the Lord has sent to fully deliver his people from their anguish. Crowds will still come, and they are more and more, though they are more and more hardened towards Jesus' teaching, not in general, but about himself. Now, all that's necessary for you to know because of what Jesus continually teaches us and his disciples and anyone else who would hear him, all that Jesus is teaching about salvation and faith. And when we think about faith, we think about saving faith. Saving faith does not just simply mean that you acknowledge Jesus to be a great prophet or a great moral teacher, or a wise man, or even one who had the power of God in order to do miracles. He's not just an outstanding person in your mind. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who passed away as a confessing Jehovah's Witness, would always say, wanting to have something in common with me in my own pursuit, I, I think Jesus is the, is the greatest man to ever walk on the face of the earth. Yet he would still deny that he is God the Son of God, the Messiah of God's own people. Saving faith is not just acknowledging who Christ is, but rather it's giving yourself over to Him completely. Saving faith doesn't just simply acknowledge who He is, but saving faith acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of sinners and as the Lord and Messiah. And this is the message that Jesus is not only proclaiming in broad step, but also is summoning people to understand And give their lives over to. This is the message that he's been preaching again and again and again. And now it looks like he's on a new trajectory towards a new kind of people. He's been saying that you and I and all the people in the text need what cannot be had within themselves. He is regularly, we saw this man repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, that you who you are is not good enough to withstand the righteousness of God. So you need something. I think I said it a couple weeks ago. You think you have an internal solution to your alien problem, but rather you have an internal problem. And what Jesus is saying, you need an alien solution. And that can only come to them through their giving themselves up and depending on actually Jesus. 
to save them from their, what their hearts deserve. And, and this is what Matthew shows us in episode, episode, episode. You almost see this as a revolving wheel that continually turns over. We're in a series of episodes where Matthew is showing us what true faith looks like. Now, in our case today, in our passage today, what Jesus demonstrates to us and what Matthew records for us, so we might have a brighter picture of who Jesus is, is that Jesus, to demonstrate to people around him, he takes people at their root level or at their basic level, and then he allows a demonstration of what true faith looks like. So he takes us at our core. He takes us at our foundation. And one of the foundations that he takes us at is that we all are suffering. He points out, or he allows this woman to point out to the rest of us that she is suffering. And then he takes that suffering and applies the desire of fleeing that suffering to then the reality that Jesus is the only one worthy to flee to. He's the only one capable of helping you in your root base, your suffering. Who can we go to? Who can we flee to? Who can we give ourselves over to? What Matthew records for us that Jesus does in this woman's case is that we can have faith in him and he is the only one that we can go to. Now, suffering on its own. I'm still not to the first couple of points. Suffering on its own. You think of the the category, the, the theological doctrine, or the reality of suffering. It is a huge topic. We can talk about suffering forever as long as we suffer. There's the reality of suffering, the fact that it actually happens, but that's not today. We can talk about the types of suffering. Different people suffer in different ways. All of it seems awful, but that's not what this text is talking about today. We can even talk about what causes you to suffer. Is it something from within? Is it something from outside? But that's not in our text today. We could even talk about trying to avoid suffering in the midst of however God is carrying you through life. But that's not for today. Today, I want you to see from the text how Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah because of what your suffering actually reveals about you. I want you to think about suffering from the context of how does that strip away everything that you might build yourself up to be. What now does your suffering reveal about you? And I even talked to several people this morning who you asked them, how's it going or what's new or how's your week been? And they put on the table how they are hoping to endure, but how in reality they are suffering. So I say that, what does your suffering reveal about you recognizing that if there are 200-something people here today, there's a lot of suffering going on. And friend, what this text is asking, it's asking you to examine yourself in the mirror. What is it showing about you? Everyone suffers. You suffer. And what does that suffering reveal? I I can't remember who said it, but there's that famous, uh, I think it's a basketball quote, um, sports don't build character, right? So coaches, coaches in the room now, they're perking up, yeah. Sports don't build character. What do they do? They reveal character. You know, when the going gets tough, that's where we really really see who you are. In the midst of suffering in the same way, suffering is not like playing sports, but kind of along the same way, our suffering will reveal who we really are. Your suffering doesn't necessarily make you who you are from the outside in, but your suffering will reveal or show who you are from the inside out. And by that, I mean this woman in this passage was truly suffering. She was suffering. And how she suffered showed Well, the text brings up how she suffered showed her faith as she acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God, the Lord and the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, the only one who can help her 
in her greatest need. So to put it briefly, what does your suffering reveal? Friends, hopefully in, in whatever you're suffering through and going through today, hopefully your suffering reveals your faith to where it becomes a great light to others around you, to, to where it becomes a great encouragement, even though the muck is thick and you would not want anyone to go through it. You can be encouraged in the reality that when you have nothing on your own, who are you hoping in? The object of your faith is what your suffering reveals. Our passage has three major segments, three major scenes. The woman sought, and then she sought, and then the third scene, she sought Jesus again for help. And in this emotional exchange uh, between a grieving and desperate mother and our Lord, we learn tremendous things about Christ. We learn a tremendous things about the quality of faith, the, the hardness even of the disciples' hearts, but also an encouraging lesson for us to persist in the midst of our trust towards the Lord who this woman is going to. So I, wanna, I think this text highlights four ways about how you and I can think about what our suffering reveals. So the first one is, what does our suffering reveal? True faith is revealed in surprising circumstances. This woman was suffering in a surprising circumstance. So true faith will show itself even through surprising circumstances. Look at verse 22. Uh, we see in this first place that true faith is revealed in surprising circumstances where this woman, who's a Canaanite woman, cries out to our Lord for help on behalf of her daughter. Look at verse 22 there. I'll read it. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now what she asks and then says is truly amazing. She asks for the Lord to have mercy on her, but then she calls out to him, son of David. She then claims what she is suffering through. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And her sufferings are remarkably revealing here. Those verses could rightly be headed by the old saying that you have heard so many times, that man's extremities or man's impossibilities is often God's opportunities, because that's exactly what we see happening in this sad event surrounding the life of this Canaanite woman and her encounter with Jesus. Jesus had taken his disciples out to the land of Israel and into the region of the Gentiles around Tyre and Sidon. So you think about this geographically. He's now in a new region doing something new, but he's now encountering people who are very different, both socially and economically and everything else. They are very different from all the people that he was usually preaching to. And perhaps there would be an opportunity there as Jesus would go out to this new region along this coastal line. Who here wouldn't want to go to a coastal line and do what? Chill, rest, take a break. What do you want to do? I'm always amazed that when people go to the beach, they want to play like volleyball uh, or they want to play just all kinds of stuff. It's like, no, I want to go to the beach and look at the water and just think, wow, look how calm I can be. Maybe that's what Jesus was going with his disciples too. But he was confronted by this woman who heard about him, saw him, and came to him immediately. And as soon as his presence is known in that region, immediately a woman comes to him and begs him for help, even after he's left the country. There are folks looking for help now. And upon their, his arrival to this region, a non-Jewish woman, which is what a Canaanite is, Matthew explicitly says she's a Canaanite woman. One of the other Gospels calls her a Phoenician woman. In other words, she's just not a Jew, but she's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite, and she comes to him. Now, this is supposed to be a tense moment within the text. 
Matthew is highlighting this. Jesus and his Jewish disciples are now being confronted, not just by a Gentile, but by a Canaanite. You know, we might say today, you know, those people who we don't want to be like. And can you imagine the emotion that would have been drawn up in the minds of the disciples to know that this Canaanite woman is now speaking to their Messiah of Israel here in their midst? She's come. She's desperate. Her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed and suffering, and there is no human aid that she could seek. That The reality of her being a Canaanite, so understand this culturally, the reality of her being a Canaanite mean, means that she would have had a hundred other gods that she could have given her attention to. She had so many other possibilities to go to this person or that person or this circumstance or that person and say, help me with this circumstance. All she would have had in her entire life is availability of going to someone or something that only proved to be a false god. And now she comes to Jesus. And what does she say to him? Son of David, help me. And we find that where she came from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon were such a prayer may well fill us with such a surprise. And the circumstances here are surprising because, frankly, she doesn't belong. And the disciples would feel that and even talk about that in the way that they responded to her cries for help. She doesn't belong in their midst. All of us have, in some way or another, been left out of a group. (laughs) And it's miserable, isn't it? You know, even if you're walking through Chili's to another part, you're like, everyone is looking at me as if I don't belong. And that's painful, isn't it? Everyone belongs at Chili's, even though we think we don't. And here, this woman didn't care from the circumstances that she was coming from. People around her cared. But from the bottom of the pit, you could say, she went to the fountain that would provide her, she thought, with life. The circumstances here are surprising because everyone around her would see her as not belonging, yet her claim, her request, her prayer actually demonstrates and reveals her true faith. J.C. Riles says that her crying out to Jesus from a position of worldly unworthiness, her crying out to Jesus from a position of worldly unworthiness ought to teach us that it is grace, not place, which makes people believers. Friends, I don't know where you're coming from in the midst of your suffering, but all of us are coming from what we feel is very far away. And there was no one who was coming from further away than this woman. But it was grace in her eyes of which would prove to be the love of God, not the place of her circumstances. Your circumstances today may be unhelpful. (laughs) And some of you have really harsh circumstances. We all would admit that. They may be harsh. They may even be horrific. But it's clear from this text that this woman's faith didn't come from a pleasant valley or green pastures. It was from within the valley of the shadow of the demonic that she then ran to Christ and begged for his ear. Ryle, the person I just quoted from, J.C., comparatively and biblically preached that you may live in a prophet's family like Gehazi, a servant of Elijah, and continue in unrepentance and believing and fond of this world. As if to say, you could, be, you could be born, raised, and die in the church, and yet still be far away from unrepentance. He goes on to say, you may dwell in the midst of superstition, dark idolatry, like the little maid in Naaman's house, though yet be faithful, a faithful witness to God for his Christ. How many of us are, are our testimonies anything other than the pit of despair and darkness? Yet it was Christ who overwhelmed that darkness with light and drew us to himself. Friend, in faith, 
Do not despair your soul's eternal state merely because you are cast in an unfavorable season of life. The life of a Christian, and I learn this every day, 36, certainly I learned the depth of this more than when I was, you know, 35 or 25 or awesome at 17, right? The life of a Christian is a steady march forward from death to new life. It's from wretchedness to glory. And in this woman's case, in our text this morning, a woman from a detestable canon came to the soon-crowned king of the Jews. She came to him from a desolate social state, and she cried for his attention. So, friend, do not forget the reality that true faith is revealed even in surprising circumstances. It was possible to dwell in the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, yet have the audience of the king of the kingdom of heaven. So friends, if you are here and you feel either unworthy or no one understands, rest assured, we may not understand. And we may have no idea empathetically of what you're going through. But what Jesus is demonstrating to us is the one who was far away and completely unworthy had an audience of the king. Second, I hope you see that true faith is revealed through worldly suffering. This woman's true faith was revealed through worldly suffering. And this is always a hard pill to swallow. And you see this again and again in the scriptures, that affliction or suffering often proves to the Christian soul to actually be a great blessing. Affliction or suffering to the Christian soul over time proves to be a great blessing. We don't wish it upon ourselves but we are thankful for it on the other side of the river. You think of the hardship that the Israelites were drugged through, kicking and screaming, to be placed on the other side of the river. And again and again, what did they do for the rest of their lives? Kick and scream against the God who had provided everything. And they needed to be reminded again and again, look on which side of the river you're on. You're not in bondage anymore. But it was through that suffering that their faith was made bright. This shows the faith that is inside of you. Your suffering will reveal the faith that is inside of you or the faithlessness. Though the mountains are high and the valleys are low, the sanding down of worldly pleasure or fleshly desire is painful. Yet, it's intended for the master to make his masterpiece. I am not a handy person. (laughs) I can water the yard because I have a sprinkler system, right? And one of those is broken. And it's been broken for two years. And I'm not going to fix it, right? I'm just going to turn it off. I'm amazed at some people who can not only are handymen, but they're actually great craftsmen. And what is, what is the, the greatest feature of you've built a clock or a cabinet or a bed or just a, or a board that you put books on? It's that, it's that final, final work of finishing that thing down, sanding that down to where it's perfect. And in so many ways, what God is doing in our lives, drawing us through suffering, Drawing us through these awful things is actually sanding down our hearts to where we actually look more like him in the process. This Canaanite mother, no doubt, was deeply strained, overwhelmingly hurting. What mom wouldn't hurt like this in her same circumstances? Her little child is exasperated and oppressed with a demon, and nothing is, re- is relieving her child from that office awfulness. 
You think of her going from doctor office to doctor office to doctor office. And I don't want it to appear to ignore the strain and the struggle here, but the suffering of the girl or her mom actually isn't the main point of this passage. The nouns in this passage aren't really the main points. Whatever the nouns may be, the the proper nouns or the improper nouns aren't really the main point here, but rather the thrust and the climax that is found in the passage are actually the verbs that describe within the suffering of where this woman actually took her suffering daughter. It's the reality that she went to Jesus that proved her faith. Her circumstances were horrible. All capital letters would define those. Her situation seemed to be unending. You could imagine that this would be a post that would have no end of how much suffering she's going through. But what revealed her faith there? That verb of she went to Christ. It was her trouble that made her a moment in Matthew's gospel, yes. But it was Jesus' kindness and strength that made it an obvious addition in the collection of stories of Jesus' own majesty. But it was that this woman went to Jesus, which revealed her faith, her soul, her inside, her heart. Where else could she go? She went to Christ. And him appearing as if he uh, disregards her. If you just read the text in plain setting, it looks like she rebukes her from silence. Though he doesn't uh, relieve her of her repetitional cries, she's learning to call out to him. She's showing herself through her suffering of what it means to pray. She's, she's actually teaching us of, of what it looks like to suffer before the Lord. You go to him and you ask and you keep asking and you keep asking. I was on a phone call with someone earlier this week who's going through something and he said, I keep praying for it. I keep praying for this to be resolved in some way because I've seen all the ways that God has relieved me from suffering in the past. The amount of times that he'll pray are probably going to seem to him as unending. Yet here we see this woman did it three times. And with everything I have, she said, help me. Please, with everything that I have, I need your help. You are the only one who I can go to help me. And without her faith's journey, without this process of her going to the Lord, she might have lived and died in a careless unawareness of God's sovereignty and grace and mercy of her life and never actually see Jesus at all. But it is through this suffering or the means of this suffering is exactly how God is drawing her to his own suffering servant. Without her suffering, uh, you and I, would, be given a, would not be given a template of where we're to go. So friends, see this in many ways as just an example. Not, not to say that her suffering is worse than yours, not that yours is better than hers or anything else, but what does she do with his, her own suffering? With relentless fervor, she goes to the Lord. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you're new to the Bible, open it to the middle and just keep turning left. Psalm 119 is a multi-page chapter. It's a huge chapter in the book of Psalms. Psalm 119, verse 71. With the understanding here that that this woman's suffering is actually what drew her to the person of the Messiahship altogether. Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Friends, I I wonder if you believe that on a regular basis. I wonder if the, the regular cry of this woman asking Jesus for help 
can be reflected in your own heart where the psalmist calls out, it is good for me that I was suffering. I was afflicted. I was brought low. Do you believe that? I know you've experienced that, whether you recognize it or not. But do you notice that the tear-drenched pages that we read here that actually give you life, recognizing in retrospect what I didn't want was actually what was good for me. Let us mark this spot well in our scriptures where there's nothing which shows our faithlessness more than our exasperation when under fire. There is nothing that will show you your own faithlessness than your emotional exasperation when under fire. A lot of us, we actually do suffer as if there is no God at all. We suffer like he's actually not in charge of the heavens and the earth. We, we think that he's not in charge of the little atoms in our mind or the little atoms between us and other people. We panic and freak out as those who have no faith. But look at how this woman, we'll just say, was freaking out toward the Lord. She went and begged and hoped. And through that, we see her faith. One theologian says that trials are intended to make us think to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Trials are intended to make us think, what do we believe? To wean us from the world. What idols have we been holding up? To send us to the Bible, what is true? And to drive us to our knees, giving ourselves over to the Lord. The Heidelberg Catechism begins with one question. If you don't know what the Heidelberg Catechism is, it's just a really long question and answer session uh, created for people of the church, but very often for children. Confessions, as you will, or catechisms are made to, for parents to ask children, basically, what do you believe? And this Heidelberg Catechism is actually being refashioned or given, I guess, modern words, if you will, into the New City Catechism, which our own children's ministry does week in, week out. They, they, Haley will ask a question. You still do that? Okay, Ailey will ask, and this could have been a bad illustration. She asks a question, and then these children are being trained on what the Bible says to be true, like, a, like its own systematic theology, an issue of the world, an answer from the Word. Listen to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? Think about that, friends. Under the umbrella of your own suffering, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, it goes on, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly, willingly, and ready from now to live until I can live no longer. What is my only hope in life and death? And some, as the New City Catechism says, that I am not my own, but in Christ alone, yet I live. Friends, health is a good thing. But according to our scriptures, and especially Ecclesiastes, sickness is far better if it leads you to the Lord, prosperity is a great mercy. But hardship is even greater of a love if it brings you to the hope of Christ. This woman's affliction 
was actually her hour of grace. It was her proving ground to anyone around her, which we'll get into in a second, of what her suffering actually revealed, that she was in with the one who was calling everyone to himself. So though through suffering, this woman's faith was revealed as true, for she went to be with the one who was her only hope. Now third, true faith is revealed through grace and compassion. This is a hard-hitting one because there's this unique twist to this narrative, and this twist is that Christ's people are often less gracious and compassionate than Christ himself. Like, who are these disciples that are around Jesus? Jesus, the Messiah of all, a beggar who comes to him and says, I'm hurting. My daughter is demonly oppressed, demonically oppressed. Help me. And what do her disciples do? Look at the text. This woman, this Canaanite, found no favor with the Lord's disciples. Now, it could be geographical. Maybe her being an inhabitant of the coast of Tyre and Sidon made her unworthy. Maybe it was her being a woman or her having a wayward child or being a Gentile. There are always a thousand reasons for us to separate ourselves under the throne and reign of Christ. So it should be shocking to hear the words of verse 23. Look at the second half there. Send her away. These are supposed to be God's people. Think about it. Her life is falling apart. Her daughter, whom she loves, is in serious, is in grave, is in a grave condition, and the disciples reply to her simply to go to the Lord uh, and Jesus, or the, the, her, their reply to her as she goes to the Lord Jesus, cries out to him, is that she's obnoxious. She keeps crying. Get her out. Send her away. We're on a mission. But look at verse 24. Jesus, by speaking to her in verse 24, is overtly denying the request of the disciples here. They say, send her away. And Jesus, as a rebuke to them, starts talking to her right then. Verse 24, by speaking to her, when disciples have asked her to send her away, Jesus is showing that he actually has something going on in the midst that he wants to give to this woman. Jesus engages her in conversation. And even though his words are hard and may even seem insensitive, recognize that those words represent the reality that Jesus has absolutely no intention of ever ignoring someone who comes to him. Friends, you may feel unworthy, and you are, but you are not unworthy to him. He is the one who continually says to those who are far off, come near to me. Ignore, <laughs> ignore the foolish ones around me, come to me. Don't go to them. They don't have the answers. Come to me. I think it's clear what the danger here is. This serves as an example for us of what not to do. Friends, to us today, do not discourage those who are coming after Christ. Don't try to strip away of who they are. Go to their root and say, go to him who is the only one who can provide fruit. The disciples don't fully understand the grace of the kingdom of heaven. And in response to Jesus' words, let's seek to have more of the mind of Christ in this circumstance. Like him, may we be gentle. May we be kind. And may we be supporting anyone who seeks to be saved. Oftentimes, true faith is revealed through faith and compassion, and in this case, through the disciples' lack of grace and lack of compassion. But fourth and finally, true faith we see seeping to the top from this text. True faith is revealed through this woman's, through this woman's perseverance. It's like our perseverance was a means by which we can all understand what true faith is. In keeping with the movement of the text, look at the second major movement of the text. There is a shift between verse 24 and 25. It's like a camera removes an angle and goes to another one. He comes, 
or she comes, she begs. Jesus responded in verse 24, basically saying, I didn't come for you. I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. Now you might think that seems a little close-minded. That seems to exclude others. I thought Jesus was welcoming to everyone. Here is a woman who is coming to him in desperate form, and she says, and he says, I didn't come for you. I came for these other people. Now, one thing that I want you to notice here, it's a, it's a literary device. I want you to imagine three different categories of people there. And there is a possibility that I will really ruin this illustration. So let's hope for the best. I want you to imagine Jesus at the center here, the disciples over to the side, and Jesus is looking at this woman who is coming to him in desperate form. She calls out to him, she begs him, she seeks him, and it's almost like Jesus, well, he does hear these people say, send her away, and he's speaking to her, but he's looking at them as he's about to rebuke them for what they just said. She's saying, help me, my daughter is in anguish. And he looks at the disciples and said, I've only come for the people of Israel. And they think, yeah, that's right. It's us. And it's almost as if he says, watch this, fools. And look at what the text there says. Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. I mean, again, remember, he's, he, he has his shoulders towards her, but his face towards his disciples. I've only come for the house of Israel. She comes and begs, prostrate on the ground, asks that he would help. Lord, again, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take, again, she, he's looking at them. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The dogs, you can imagine like a little lap dog. It's not like a perverse thing to say to someone, but he's saying, it's not right for me to throw food at the Gentiles. Right, guys? Right, disciples? Who I'm about to totally destroy in an argument that they don't see coming. And what does she say? Yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And it's as if he says, that's what I'm talking about. That's faith. You think it's genealogy? You think it's territorial? You think it's geographical? You think it's because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps? And I'm saying, I, I thought you guys were right. And she's saying, whatever falls off the table, I'll get. I recognize that I'm a dog. I recognize that I'm wretched. I recognize that I have nothing to bring to the table. But can you scoop something off to the side? Friends, we see that through this perseverance, he is demonstrating to us and to the world of what true faith looks like. It is recognizing who we are on the inside, recognizing who he is eternally and gloriously, and admitting that whatever we are, we need all of him, even if it's the crumbs, even if it's the crumbs. But what does Jesus continually provide? Look at the, look at the final verse. It says in verse 28, she just said, give me the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, oh woman, great is your faith. And friends, recognize that no disciple in the New Testament was ever given the title as this. No Jewish person in the New Testament was ever given the title of great is your faith or mega faith. It was just this woman who was far away. But what did he do for her? He didn't just give her crumbs. He said, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. He pronounces a compliment 
to this woman that he had never given to any of his disciples, never once. As you can scan the Gospels, he never says, O men of Israel, your faith is great. No, it's this Canaanite woman where the words came, your faith is great. And just like the centurion that he did in Matthew chapter 10, your faith is great. It was only to the Gentiles that Christ pronounced that benediction. He had given her faith, and yet he praises her for her persevering exercise of this saving faith. And immediately, the woman's daughter is healed. My friends, in your suffering, where do you go? To whom do you go to? This woman was willing to eat the crumbs at the foot of the Savior, but in grace, by forgiveness, Christ offers you much more. Because at the foot, everything was nailed and everything was provided. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the instruction and demonstration of true faith from this woman's heart. We thank you that persistence was on display, that responding to the gift of your love is showing itself to be fruit to us. We ask, our Lord, that you would provide for us in heart what you have provided for her, that we would not act like those who wanted to reject her, but that you would build up in us not only a heart that seeks you, but a heart that desires to bring others around you. Oh Lord, we recognize that we are mere beggars who would be satisfied by your crumbs, but we rejoice in that through the suffering of your Son, you have given us a feast that will satisfy us forever. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our gracious Lord. Amen.